Welcome back to the Detection Challenging Paradigms podcast. This is episode 35. Uh, just a little housekeeping. This is our first episode without Johnny Johnson. So Johnny took a new a new role, uh, uh, binary defense, and as part of the new role, uh, he decided that he needed to focus on that on that position, and so he stepped away from the podcast. But we we really appreciate everything that Johnny gave to the podcast, and we look forward to probably having him on as a as a guest in the future, so that uh, we continue learning from him and getting some of his uh, cool research. Today we have Luke Jennings from Push Security, uh, who's going to talk to us about the SaaS. Uh, threat matrix that they that they've created. Um, this is going to be kind of a, a little bit of a departure from what we typically talk about. So, Luke, what we generally we've talked about, like kind of Windows attacks, and so uh, and detection as a as a result of that. And we've actually received feedback over time that it'd be nice to kind of switch things up. And so this is maybe switching things up more than what people expected us to do. Um, but it's it's something that like I'm going to just set the audience up. To begin with, I'm relatively ignorant about uh, SaaS in general. Like, I mean, I'm a user of it, but I don't know a lot about the inner workings, how authentication works and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm going to be kind of operating as somebody who's asking questions and learning along the way. So um, I'm really interested to kind of start digging into that. But before we get going, could you kind of give us a little introduction to yourself and, uh, and maybe talk about push security a little bit? Sure. So yeah, my name is Luke Jennings. I'm the VP of R&D at Push Security. Uh, it's a company we're focused on uh, securing cloud identities and, and SaaS is a, is a big part of that. Um, so really, the reason I came to this project is that I wanted to try and kind of look ahead and try to understand what attacks would be like against SaaS native organizations. Because we're, we're already in a point now where pretty much big enterprises are what I would say hybrid SaaS, as in they, they have big internal networks still, but you know they increasingly use a lot more SaaS. And in, in general, in our experience, they effectively use a lot more SaaS than they realize they use because of what we call shadow SaaS usage. So that's one element of it. But the, the other point is, I think with startups like us, there's a lot of like fully SaaS native companies now. At Push, we have no infrastructure. We're a fully remote company, no offices, nothing we manage. Obviously, our product has code, and that even then, that's just serverless AWS stuff, that kind of thing. So, you know, otherwise, we've got over a hundred SaaS apps we use, and we're a startup, so it's pretty crazy. Um, and yeah, so the question mark I sort of came to this project with was, you know, like how do you own an organization without touching the endpoint? Um, so, you know, you mentioned Windows attacks. My background is that is in that space originally. I spent a lot of time attacking and defending endpoints and developing EDR and that sort of thing. So I had to really just throw out my entire career's worth of knowledge and start from scratch like a like a new um, <laughs> and approach this problem from the start. Saying, okay, like let I've got all my toys taken away from me. What do I do? Like, is it possible to attack organizations like that? So um, that's pretty much where I came to the start of the project from. And then at a high level, I kind of started from looking at existing sort of cyber kill chain frameworks and thinking like, well, let's let's take that sort of top-down approach to begin with. So I kind of picked the phases from like the MITRE attack frameworks. I've worked with that quite a lot before. Um, and even, you know, the first question was just like, does that even make sense to the do the phases still make sense here? Um, and I think, like, broadly speaking, a lot of the stuff that I've done since does fit within most of those phases. There are some differences, like, um, 
I think command and control is main, the main one that maybe doesn't really exist in the same way anymore. That's so focused around getting out of network segments and, you know, like hiding protocols and all that sort of stuff. So that doesn't really exist in the SaaS world in the same way because you're dealing with applications and APIs that are intended to be internet accessible for the most part. Um, <laughs> execution is a little bit different because most of them aren't based around you running code. There are some exceptions to that uh, that I found. So I kind of I looked into some things that fit in that space too. Everything else at the high level, I, do, I feel does map. And, it, and it, things either fit into one of two categories. Either you're dealing with techniques that are probably reasonably familiar, but they they work slightly differently in the, in the SaaS space. Uh, so kind of new flavors of old attacks. And some of the other attacks I looked into, there are actually some quite SaaS specific things that I've done too. So... Yeah, when I released that matrix, it was, uh, I think, just shy of 40 attacks. And there's a, li a little bit more than that since. That I've added a few more since. But uh, that's, yeah, that's how I came into it. And, and, um, and yeah, the reason was to try and come up with a new framework for attacking companies that, that operate in this space because it's going to become the norm as years go on. Sweet. Yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through a couple basics of... SaaS, my understanding, and please correct me if I say anything that's incorrect. So SaaS stands for software as a service. Yeah. Yep. And one thing, as I was reading through a lot of your your blog posts, which like uh, we'll probably put some some of the blog posts in the in the podcast description. But uh, honestly, I went from like what I felt like was zero to hero looking at some of your <laughs> blog posts to where, especially there's a few blog posts where you kind of chained uh, different techniques together to show how there's, for instance, one technique might have this. Uh, kind of uh, weakness to where it's like detectable or maybe somebody might be suspicious of that technique by itself. But when you mix a couple techniques together, it makes it a little bit easier to fool the user into doing certain things or maybe hide, hide your behavior. Um, okay. And then when it comes to SaaS, I think a lot of us, like you said, are using SaaS products all the time without even realizing it. So like one, one that we use at SpectreOps, which maybe, maybe I shouldn't be publicizing this, but is Expensify, right? For instance, right. GitHub Enterprise would be would be an example of this. Uh, Luke was even talking about for the podcast, um, we were trying to do some automation for like, as you as you probably found out, we're not great at booking guests. And that's, a, that's always like a little bit of a, <laughs> a, a process that we have to go through. And so he was talking about using if this, then that. And I saw right. that that's one of the examples. And in fact, that's probably one of the, one of the, these like workflow automation tools seem to be a gold mine for attackers based on what you what what I've read from from your work is uh, you use is it Zapier or Zapier? Yeah, it's another one I used. Yeah, that uh, those are really great opportunities for you to get kind of code execution and be able to do different things and interact with a bunch of like federated Z um, SaaS products and gather information and do all kinds of cool stuff. So uh, I think I think there's this this idea that we're interacting with these SaaS products like Microsoft 365 would be an example that everybody's everybody's dealing with but they're they're just all over the place and we're interacting with them daily and maybe we don't even consider them to be something that we have to worry about but they're they're out there and they have all of our all of our information basically it's true it's true yeah so um when i when i think of so traditionally when i think of the different attacks that like I've seen us use on red teams that uh, at the time I had never considered to be SAS attacks, but they uh, in kind of looking at the threat matrix, uh, it, it appears that they are. So two things. One was 
in, I don't know, probably five years ago, Nick Landers, uh, who was at Silent Break Security at the time, he, he did a presentation at DerbyCon about uh, malicious mail, mail rules, like mail forwarding rules. And maybe, maybe that was focused more on like on-prem Outlook uh, mail rules, but uh, that seems to be a technique that, that uh, you talk about with, um, in, in the threat matrix. But also another one that, that we used successfully on some red teams is, uh, at the time it was, it was Skype that we were taking advantage of, but like uh, basically connecting, connecting a, a shadow Skype or our own Skype uh, instance into a corporate Skype infrastructure and then sending direct messages as kind of like a phishing payload. So that seems to be a pretty common kind of attack technique to to be able to get initial access or maybe phishing or fool fool the user into thinking that it's safe because you're you're kind of trained for your IM to be a little bit more um, we're all, we're all trained to be suspicious of emails, but maybe not so much of like our IM, whatever, whatever we're using for direct messages or whatever that is. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think IM phishing is going to be an increasingly important vector. And yeah, you're right. Like email phishing, well, it hasn't stopped working. It still works. Maybe it doesn't work quite as well as it used to, but we haven't solved the problem there with all that time. And, and yet users are not expecting it so much in the IM world. And we now have cross-tenant access via Slack Connect and Teams external access and so forth. Um, and also there's, you know, there's, there's interesting opportunities for spoofing that come with that as well. Um, and link handling as well. It's very different to emails like link previews in Slack are really great for taking advantage of from an attacker's perspective. I, I spoke about that in one of my blog posts about, you know, spoofing a link preview. So it looks for the user like there's some legitimate context there and then directing them to your own phishing link. So there's definitely interesting capabilities um, there. And also you, just, you can edit messages afterwards. So once they've, once they've been compromised, you can just go and remove the malicious bits. When IR come looking, there's no email to look at. They go and find the message and you've replaced the link to the <laughs> legit one. There's all sorts of little tricks that I think impact that. So for, for that, I think I read that blog post. The, the, the way that that, that kind of works is you have some sort of like, you set your web server to respond to different user agents. And so when it's the, uh, so when Slack does the kind of like uh, link context or the detail, it has a specific user agent. And so you could, you could receive that request, see that it's coming from Slack and feed it a completely different page. And this is something that, like, I know, I know our red teamers with like Cobalt Strike will have a redirector, and so uh, there are certain user agents that we would expect that we would set the beacon implant to to be calling back with, and then that would make sure that you're getting the actual payload, for instance. Uh, but if somebody's calling back with like a normal browser or something like that, we might feed them to a seemingly legitimate page, right? So that that's kind of like. Um, it's a common technique that attackers are already using, uh, at least during red teams. But it's kind of targeting a different a different perspective, and then you feed them to like a login page or something like that, so that you could kind of harvest their credentials for whatever application. Maybe maybe it's like their Microsoft account or their their Google account or something like that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly it. Yeah. Just the three hundred two redirect it somewhere different based on the user agent, and you can do all sorts of trickery there. I think it gets even more interesting if you gain access to a to a Slack tenant, for example, <laughs> with things like Slack apps. Mm -hmm. You can use that for persistence, mm -hmm. uh, but that, but it also creates the ability to do interesting automation. So, like you can you know you can use automation platforms like we mentioned before to auto fish people 
it sets something up, the monitors messages. If someone mentions pup, like, oh, they need to reset a password, automatically spoof a message from the IT bar mm -hmm. and, and combine it with link previews. Um, you can do really interesting things when you get, you could even do multi-party spoofing. So like you can use bot tokens to send messages as anyone. So imagine you're doing an access request. You're talking to someone on Slack, oh, I need access to this. And they say, oh, your manager needs to approve that. You go to your automation thing, spoof a message from another person. It comes in line with a chat in a channel as a different person and, you know, pretend to be the manager. And then they go, oh, okay, you know, yeah, it's fine. He can access it. And if they don't notice, there's a little app icon there. You get next to the thing. But beyond that, you can just spoof anything. So, yeah, once you're on a tenant, it opens up even more opportunities with things like Slack. It's definitely interesting. This is something that we actually researched <laughs> internally, Jared. I don't know if you know this, but like a little while back, it was a quarterly initiative for me to figure out a way for our company if someone shared a link in Slack to put that somewhere so that we could access it later and just have it for research. So I ended up doing some, uh, um, just some cursory research into the capabilities of Slack apps. And then I was like, yeah, there's a bunch of options that do this and just shovel your links into a third party site. And then I showed it to our, uh, our IT manager and he looked at the permissions required and he's like, this is sending every Slack message in our tenant to a third party service that reads it and that does something. And he's like, hell no. So needless to say, we don't have anything in our Slack that does that now because he took the time to read what's behind that app. But if you're just in a in a company and you're like, oh, this sounds like it solves a problem we have, install. Someone could be reading every single one of your messages and you could potentially not know it. Man. Yeah. The um one one of the things that is interesting is you started to talk about how you looked at the cyber kill chain, kind of the traditional on-prem cyber kill chain, and you said most of the most of the different phases or categories that they, they work. One of the things that I saw is um, you talked about how we could start thinking about lateral movement in the context of SaaS. Can you can you maybe explain a little bit about how like there's there's a little bit of like a mental shift because you're not laterally moving necessarily between two computers on in the same domain or whatever, but you're laterally moving from one application to another or something along those lines. Yeah. So I think, yeah, like normally our thinking and that's movement is very much tied to infrastructure, isn't it? Endpoint to server, server to server, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That doesn't exist in the SaaS world. So the way I've been looking at it is, is either moving between accounts within the same application or moving either to the same account or to a different account on a different application. That's what I view as lateral movement. Um, you know, that, that could be doing clever internal phishing techniques via SaaS platforms forms to gain access, but it can also be just like gaining access to pre-existing connections that have been set up between them because OAuth connections are very common in SaaS apps between applications to enable sharing of data and so forth. It's pretty critical to how all of them work. So it can be that you, you know, you gain access to one application um, let's say, I don't know, Canva is a marketing tool. I just used this as an example in a blog post in the past. So it's fresh to mind. Um, you can, you know, it's a sort of a, a tool for making documents and, and so forth, but maybe you want to save those files to your OneDrive or like import new ones from your OneDrive. So you can set up a connection to your OneDrive. But then that means obviously if an attacker gains access to that Canva account, and maybe it's one you set up just with a normal username and password that got leaked, it wasn't linked to your SSO, maybe you used it for a while, forgot about it. Later on, someone compromises that and they find, oh, it's connected to OneDrive. So I can browse the OneDrive and get the files from there through a SaaS application. So that's a 
like the idea of lateral movement is is things like that uh and they any anything that enables you to move between apps or between identities across mm. apps how how um how common is it for i i assume at push you guys have a good picture i mean that's i think that's the whole point right you have a good picture of how different organizations use SaaS applications. So you have an idea of like what the spread and how common it is and all that kind of stuff. How common is it for somebody like just a random employee to sign up for Canva uh, on like their personal Gmail account and then connect that to to some corporate kind of identity or something like that? That's, I imagine that that's just people are like, I need to get my job done. I'm going to, I need Canva. So I'm going to sign up for that. And then they just have the password for their, for their uh, OneDrive account, and so they're doing that. That that seems like a terrible, a terribly insecure thing, but um, probably pretty common, I imagine. Sure. I mean, yeah, I, I don't have stats for that exact scenario, but definitely we have seen that type of thing occur, and I've certainly heard from other colleagues elsewhere that like it doing it's common in incidents to find things like that where there's a, a compromise that's involved. That in fact, I think the was it the recent. Octa incident. Oh, there was an incident recently where it's just come out that part of it was related to an employee signing in with a personal account and exposing corporate credentials because of that. Um, but certainly signing up for accounts that aren't necessarily IT approved is extremely common. That's at the statistical level. We know that from what we see in our data. Uh, later <laughs> connecting those to corporate assets as well. Um, I don't have exact stats on, but it's certainly something that happens. Gotcha. Yeah um oh man dang and th and then it's just like it's kind of impossible for you know the security team to keep track of any of this type of stuff because it's like there's no centralized logging or anything like that i know i know you talked about in one of the blog posts the idea of like app consent and the the logging of uh one of the one of the ideas is that you could kind of ride over somebody's pre-existing connection for for a certain app or I guess it's a, you would call it a cons like consent for for an app, and if and there's a difference between like for instance creating a new workflow in Zapier or Zapier I don't know um, versus versus like adding that for an individual user that had never used it before, and so it's going to be more obvious for instance for a security team to see a new app being added for a user that's never used something than it is for somebody to take over somebody's account. And then add a new workflow that maybe nobody's ever actually logging in and checking the workflows. Sure. Yeah. So that's yeah something we were terming evil twin integrations as a sort of defense evasion technique. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you're right. It's, if if you if you would like consent to an OAuth app, uh, the first time a user does it in an organization, maybe a company is paying attention to brand new apps appear and saying, "What are they?" And if someone tries to use a malicious app they've created themselves, you're going to see, hopefully if someone's investigating this, they're going to see that, okay, well, this is weird. What's that app? We can't find any evidence of what it is. But yeah, if you use a legitimate app, and particularly you use one that's already in use, it, it becomes much harder to see. If you do it with a user that already uses it, you don't even see a new consent. You can't, you literally can't tell the two different tenants from that app are accessing it because it's just one app that's in use by something like Zapier. So there's there's literally no way to really tell. All the connections come using the same app ID from the same infrastructure that Zapier control. This, this is an example of Zapier. It could be anything. But yeah, the, you can't... All you can tell 
um, apart is the actual activity itself. So if you know the legit activity was uploading files and then you see files being downloaded, you need to, and, and that's the malicious activity. That's the separation you can see, but you're only going to see that when you already know what's happened and you're, you're doing IR to see the extent of the damage. You, you know, you're never going to really see that that was malicious through proactive detection. It's just too difficult. Um, yeah. You get down to that point. Gotcha. Is, yeah. That, oh, go ahead, Luke. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say that this is also, you said someone has to be looking at those logs and specifically knowing what to look for to catch that. And I have to imagine just because I see a subset of customers, right, that um, that we work with, but I don't see a lot of people looking at those kinds of logs. I They're focused on endpoint. They're, a lot of people are just now jumping into containerization technology and trying to get you know, how do I see inside my Kubernetes cluster that's getting set up and torn down every four seconds? There's some people that are just now looking at AWS API logging. There's no one. I've not really stepped foot into a customer and they're like, yeah, uh, we're checking out which apps are getting connected to our Office 365 instance. We're, nobody's looking at that. <laughs> and it's not even something that I, I bet Jared can say this, like, this episode is the reason why we've started thinking about it. It's not something that was on the forefront of our minds either as people that kind of do this at the enterprise scale day to day. So the longer you talk, the more scared I'm getting Yeah, for some <laughs> of the things that we haven't looked at. Yeah. I mean, I think really, yeah, you're right. Like people looking at OAuth apps is probably already on the higher end anyway. But but I think when when I've experienced people doing it, it's mostly... It's mostly at like the entire org level, like seeing a, new, a brand new app and then deciding that's something to approve or contain. So, so someone tries to connect Dropbox or something and they say, oh, no, we don't use Dropbox here. Let's deal with that. But yeah, going but going beyond that level, I think, is, is definitely extremely rare mm. at the moment. Okay, you're making me think about like I know um, we've had customers to where we use certain apps during assessments, and so we'll like, I mean, even Zoom, it would I guess Zoom would count, right? So um, we'll have customers that say, "Hey, we don't use Zoom here," and so we've actually blocked the domain to where like you can't use it at all, right? But once you have like one user that's that's doing something, now you can't block that domain, and so now it's a question of. How widespread is that? How how much of that spread is actual legitimate activity? There's also an aspect of like, yeah, Zoom's common. And so people are going to be aware and be thinking about that. And if you're using Teams, for instance, maybe you know that you, you're never going to need to actually use Zoom. But there's, there's, I mean, there's just tons of apps that maybe you don't even know about or you're not thinking about. And so those could just kind of sneak their way in. I imagine that getting an idea like for, I mean, even for Spectre Ops, this this would be difficult, like you said. You know, Push is a relatively small company, and you're using hundreds of hundreds of these applications. But um, for like a big company, getting an idea of what the spread of these different apps that are being used throughout the company has to be almost an impossible proposition. Yeah, well, I think it's one of the things. How, yeah, some of our larger customers. Um, if they see the amount of apps, first of all, I think that's the biggest wake-up call. Yeah, uh, it's seeing that spread, <laughs> and that's the thing. Because I think people start from a position of like, oh, maybe there's a couple of things not being used, and that will be a long process of us investigating and dealing with. But then, when suddenly that's a hundred things, you're like, oh, you don't have time to deal with a hundred different <laughs> things yeah. to investigate. So you need sensible processes for that as well. 
But um, but yeah, like the scale is is high. So we we use a lot because we're a startup that's fully South native. But in larger organisations, even if it's not an official policy, it's not been unusual for us to see literally hundreds of SaaS apps across the organisation when they're not officially a uh, a SaaS friendly company. So it's pretty and widespread. What is the um, what is an organization's ability to basically stop new SaaS products from or like centrally control? new SaaS products from being used within the organization? Is that like, is there a capability to say like, hey, we have one guy who's responsible for approving new applications? Like how how difficult is that to kind of manage? Uh, I mean, you talked about using like inbuilt Microsoft things and Google and that, or including sure. third party tools. Uh, like, so if you're talking about core sort of facilities and OSs and, and so forth, I think, um, if people are connecting up via OAuth, yeah. then obviously you will have a central place where you can go and review <laughs> that. Um, Microsoft, for example, have also put in certain kind of policies that you can you can set certain permissions to be more more or less accessible, and some to require admin consent and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So that's interesting. But I mean that that only relates to OAuth connections, which is either when someone wanted to explicitly share some data, or they've performed a social login, login with Microsoft yeah. or Google or whatever the case is. The reality is that quite a lot of people never do social logins and won't always set up an OAuth integration and will just be manually putting data in and out of systems. And that's where it gets much harder with just standard tools without having some sort of third-party product to help you. You just go and sign up with your email and set a password. I mean, the, like quite a large percentage of SaaS apps don't even support social logins or, or SAML logins mm. and versus so and so forth too. So that whole category <laughs> of them will, you know, enforce just standard username and password logins. So yeah, that's the bit where it gets difficult. Like we, you know, in our products, we're using a browser extension for providing monitoring of that side of things. So we're then inside the browser seeing what the user's doing and we can track things that way. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, some people will look at do like look at email domains and so forth as well. But I mean, you gave the example before of people signing up with personal accounts and then using them for work purposes as well. And then obviously email won't get you that either. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's tricky to try and cover all bases. It's it's obviously a challenge. It's the age long issue of just training the user almost at that point. Like you said, phishing via email is still a thing. And the reason it's still a thing is people just don't think about security when they're making a decision um and what you're describing i've done <laughs> now that i think about it i've just gone and signed up for random apps and then connected it to a work thing before so um and i consider myself a pretty security minded person so you have an organization of people who this isn't even on the radar they're just gonna like jared said go do the the thing that makes their job the easiest and then all of a sudden you end up having something out on Twitter where everybody's mad at you. And <laughs> yeah, I, I, saw, incident. I saw the example that you gave to where it's, uh, you do the evil twin to where you set up your own um, Zapier, ten, Zapier tenant, and then you uh, use an existing, con- you write over like an existing connection to where you connect to somebody's OneDrive, and then you set it up, you set up a workflow to basically every time a, a new document is created or a new file is created in the OneDrive, you just, forward that out somewhere to some some other place to where you have control as the attacker. Um, I imagine that for like 
maybe maybe it's true or mostly true that the places where the like really important documents and things like that all the all the kind of like sensitive details i guess are going to mostly be supported in a organizationally controlled way through like a microsoft some sort of microsoft login and so there's there's maybe some control over um observing whether or not people are connecting you know some third-party app that maybe doesn't have oversight to those kind of more sensitive sensitive apps is that something that you think is true or is that kind of just the wild west as far as how people interact um yeah i mean i i guess it depends on the organization and the size if someone's mm -hmm. got a reason to use a tool when they think they can do it then typically speaking we'll see they will do it um i think from an attacker's point of view obviously the evil twin thing is is trying to blend in by using those that are already there uh and so you know i gave mm -hmm. the example of say if zappy was already in use someone can reuse it for malicious purposes but even if it wasn't already in use and i'm an attacker who's compromised an account it's still a legitimate product so you know what are it going to do if they see it um you know, it's going to be okay. That's a business process automation tool. Like, yeah. you know, and, unless you get down to talking to the user and and and, and finding out that they don't really know what it is, <laughs> why would you be suspicious? It's it's a classic sort of living off the land mm -hmm. approach to just use legitimate SaaS products for malicious purposes. Um, I'm feeling like maybe I missed part of your question, but uh, does that partly answer it? Yeah, I think so. And that and the um, I like that living off the land kind of analogy that, that you're drawing there to where it's like hey we're just kind of fitting into otherwise legitimate things we have legitimate domains so it's like all the activities coming from a legitimate domain um and and we're kind of we're kind of fitting in there that that's um that's useful and i think i think like one of the things that i was thinking earlier was when we start talking about how do we detect this activity one of the things that we really kind of hit on is when it comes to detection there's this question of there's there's kind of two different ideas that you would use logging and kind of uh, your ability to track activity for one is detection and one is for investigation. And I think you kind of, you kind of hit on this, but uh, the unruly kind of decentralized aspect of these SaaS applications is going to make it very, very difficult for us to have a comprehensive detection strategy for malicious use of SaaS apps. Uh, it sounds like once you know that something bad has happened and you're already kind of like tuned in to what's going on, there, there may be enough logging for you to kind of unfurl the activity and go back in time and say, hey, what happened? How did this, how do these things get connected and what's going on here? But it seems like detection is going to be very difficult, at least in the, in the short term, just because uh, there is, there doesn't seem to be a well-organized, centralized logging capability for all the individual things. It's like, yeah, if we're connecting something using some sort of social login, maybe there's centralized centralized information for for like new connections. But uh, for each individual action within each individual SaaS application, such as creating a workflow in in Zapier, like people aren't paying attention to that just straight up. Like that, there's there's no centralized login, and even and that's almost like a scheduled task. It's it's the equivalent of like setting a scheduled task or something like that, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I think we spent a long time trying to centralize logs into Sims and so forth. And now it's almost like we've just pushed everything back out to the peripheries again and restarted the challenge to keep us all in jobs, I guess. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's true. Like, okay, you do get some logs in the core platforms, like, you know, in Microsoft or Google Workspace and <clears> so forth, but you don't see anything in a centralized manner that happens within any of those SaaS applications. Um, and many of them don't have good logs or don't necessarily have easy ways to extract those logs. But even if all of them did, it's like it's still a giant task to try and go and set up integrations with a hundred different SaaS applications that you're using. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah, that's true. It's definitely, um, it's definitely an issue. And in some cases they don't have the logs you're interested to yet. I think there's going to need to be some standardization there. Like there's been standardization with log formats and other things before. I think if this is the new norm, then there's going to start to be expectations on major SaaS providers having logs in a common format and recording certain types of events and making it very easy. Of course, some of them do. Some of the bigger ones do provide those kind of capabilities, but it's certainly not a universal um, yeah. situation. I had a quick question about your your SaaS matrix specifically. I know that you mentioned that you removed some of the tactics, the columns from your matrix, but um, Attack does have like a specific SaaS matrix. It's obviously pretty sparse compared to their one for for enterprise. Uh, but what about the one that they had? And we love Mitre here, but we all know they're not the perfect solution for everything. But what about that caused you to think? Let's just make our own thing. Like we need to to do this separately. Sure. Um, I mean, I'm I'm struggling to remember the the specifics of the different attacks that were in their their SAS matrix to begin with. But I think as an overall <laughs> point, uh, the attack framework is is heavily heavily skewed towards endpoint oriented attacks and internal network compromises and so forth. Um, I was starting from a position of being 100% focused on pure SaaS, no endpoint. Uh, and I had a lot to put out in one go. Um, and so I just thought, you know, it, it, it makes sense to just put a new SaaS <coughs> matrix out there, make it open source, see if we get contributions from other people, which we've had some, um, make it a GitHub page, you know, that kind of thing. So that's, that's pretty much where I came from. Um, there was also, I think, like, if I remember rightly, some things were focused a little on some of the major cloud providers, but maybe not as extensively across things that would affect lots of SaaS apps. But, yeah, it's kind of a multitude of reasons. As you say, like, I like Mitre. They've done, they've done great things. I've worked a lot with the attack matrix uh, before, but I just wanted to make something that was 100% focused on this new problem. Um, I did see that as being something that was going to be a periphery to the traditional endpoint-focused attack framework. You also um, kind of have a description in here of uh, you guys made a specific choice to include techniques that potentially hadn't been seen in an actual attack before. Why did you think that that was an important step to take for for your matrix versus theirs? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's yeah, that's another good point. Um, we were trying to be forward looking. Uh, you know, <coughs> we obviously have built products. Uh, features for our product to provide, you know, protection for securing identities and, and, and SaaS and so forth. But when I was building sort of detection response, for example, in the past, I came into that position from a long history of having been a red team on myself and knowing a lot there. And, I, and in this space, it was a lot more sparse what was in the public domain. But we saw 
uh, or rather we're trying foreseeing that there's going to be a rapid change in the future as this becomes the more normal way to attack people. So I thought we, we need to look ahead here. Um, there just isn't that much data to be looking backwards based on incidents that have made it out publicly. We had a little bit of extra private information from you know ex-colleagues and so forth doing a lot of incident response. Um, but I thought we, we just need to look ahead and, and you know obviously that helps us foresee things for our products in the future as well. So that's part of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought if we, we get to this point, we can get people discussing it early in the in the SAS attacks matrix foreseeing changes they're going to need to make in future and just i guess staying ahead of what's likely to come true i think i think when it comes to when it comes to that visibility problem that we talked about you have you have this this issue um and this is actually a probably a critique of common threat intelligence approaches in general which is uh the things that the things that you are paying attention to are the things that you're going to see and so, um, as you know, as like, if you're limiting your perspective to only things that you've seen before, what you're going to do is you're going to see a lot more of that thing and you're not going to see other things. Right. And especially in a, in a situation to where, as we mentioned, we don't have visibility into a lot of these different things. Right. So the chances that we will have organically come across these attacks is very low because we don't even have the logging to support it in the first place. Right. And so um, if, if you were to limit yourself to only things that we've observed in the wild, for instance, you're going to be severely hamstrung because you just you don't even have a way to have observed those things in the wild in the first place, especially if you're not even looking for them because you don't know that they're you're, they're not documented and nobody knows that they're they're actually a thing. So I think I think in general, there's uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, if you're familiar with his book, The Black, Black Swan. Um, one of the things that he talks about is the difference. A lot of times we like to think about things probabilistically, which is like, what is the likelihood that this thing is going to happen? And you, the way that you evaluate probability is based on previous occurrence, right? But the problem is, is that if you don't have a good record of previous occurrence, uh, then your, your, going, your probabilistic approach is going to be limited, right? And also the, the, the worst things that can happen are things that have never happened before because the system is not prepared for them and so he he likes to approach um dealing with uncertainty from a possibilistic perspective which is it doesn't matter if this thing has happened before or if i know i know what the probability of it occurring in the future is i just know that it is possible and so it's better for me to prepare for what might happen as opposed to what is likely to happen yeah that's definitely true and i think I would probably say, although we don't have a long history of sort of SAS native attacks against organizations, um, <clears throat> that's starting to change rapidly, I think. Uh, we do have a long history of attackers changing significantly what they do to adapt to new technological landscapes. And like, I mean, if I look, when I first got back in, into the industry in like mid 2000s, it was all perimeter attacks. Uh, in fact, they were already starting to get difficult to do, but things like Wi-Fi and, and complex web applications kind of changed the scope of things. People adapted there. But the big change was the shift to endpoint attacks. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, the landscape changed and people completely pivoted. And then and 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 right then, like organizations were not they were they were not well protected yep. um, against endpoint attacks, not even for prevention. And for when it came to detection and response in those days, it was basically non-existent. Um, and then as red teamers, it's much quicker to change what you do than a whole large organization. So yeah, for a long time, we had a field day 
<laughs> compromising our clients. But yeah, I mean, I think that's the position we're in now. The, the technological landscape is changing. The way people work is changing. Cyber attacks are not going to go away. So we can be sure that people will change to find out what is the next successful thing. And I think that's the indicator we have for expecting this to happen. Um, and it's the question is, what, what, what will that look like? Gotcha. It's a, the kind of forward thinking that, um, that people do in actual physical defense that sometimes we forget to do in, you know, network or, or technology defense, right? N nobody has ever launched like a sophisticated missile attack at the United States, but I truly believe that we've thought about that and we put something in place for it. And a lot of times in cyber, we're like, well, no one's ever done that. So let's not focus on it. It's like, I'm sure glad that we're not doing that you know, in the, in the physical defense space, because that, that wouldn't work out as well. So it's cool to see you guys kind of taking that, that approach of, we know that this is going to be the next thing. Um, and we want to make sure that we get ahead of that curve. Now, uh, I'm going to switch the topic a little bit because one of the other things that, um, you, at least to me are, are famous for is you wrote incognito. Um, and you must've released that at DEF CON, like, I don't know what year, but a long time ago. Right. Do you remember? Yeah, 2007. Yeah, that's 2007. Okay, so I was like a freshman in college, in university. So that uh, that was that predates my even. Luke might not have even been. been I was born. ten. He was ten years old in 2007. <laughs> um, and so, like when I joined when I joined the Air Force, I was a I studied history in university, and then I got kind of shoehorned into cybersecurity through a whole fluke and an accounting error. But um, actually you can't you can't spell fluke without luke and we got two lukes with us so. um but anyway the the when we first started learning how to hack we were using uh meterpreter and incognito was at the time a huge component of a meterpreter and that was that was at the time before mimikatz that's how you changed your identity in the in the environment and so um i was wondering if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about what inspired you to kind of create that project and um, some of the decisions that I know it's been a long time, but um, it's, it's a really interesting idea because token theft is still like, that's a almost an evergreen tactic to where they're still today, not great telemetry to be able to observe when somebody steals an access token. Um, and so it's, it's something that's been around since at least 2007. And honestly, like, I don't think many organizations are, are, prepared to even deal with that uh on from like a detection and, and preventative control perspective sure okay so yeah so i had an interesting <laughs> situation where i mean i was doing computer science at university uh in the mid-2000s and i got working for a company called nwr mm -hmm. uh which was a tiny startup cybersecurity startup at the time but as like a an intern I, I spent a year with them kind of you know was a pen test in that time i went back to uni and i was there was two things. One, I was looking for a security side project to keep me interested while I finished my final degree uh, year before I came back. And two, since the sort of 2003 trustworthy computing initiative that Microsoft had launched, they made such rapid progress, to be fair to them, after, after Bill Gates launched that um, in such a short number of years that it had already completely changed the landscape. So like it was getting much harder to compromise individual systems with traditional infrastructure exploits, like even on an internal network, uh, at least with the tooling available at the time. It wasn't just like you just run an exploit against anything. You could guarantee you would find some systems, but people would be patching all the most interesting systems. 
And so I was just generally thinking about the problem of like, well, it seems like the first level of initial access you're going to achieve is, is getting steadily reduced. And so I started thinking, well, I guess the, the natural response to that is to try and to figure out how to leverage it as best possible. Like you're, you're, you're only going to get given a few random systems that you can compromise. Like that's the sort of thought experiment. How do you squeeze the most out of them? And that's what kind of led me to incognito. So I started thinking about, well, you know, lots of people log into different systems. And while the system itself may not be interesting, like the people's accounts that might be on them could be interesting. So I started looking into how that works better. Um, and then I think our technical director at the time, Martin Rutz, mentioned something to me about, oh, that's all like to do with access tokens, isn't it? I've never really looked into it. So I was like, okay, I'll go and look at that. <laughs> and then, yeah, it was just like a sort of gradually unraveling um, ball of string of like figuring out what happened there and, you know, various moments of, hmm, if it works like that, then surely you could do X. Yeah. Then it was, okay, let's look into the Win32 API. Let's write some code. And before I knew it, I had Incognito. Um, and yeah, I used it privately for a few months before releasing it at DEF CON. I do still remember the f like first time it was ever used by a colleague of mine because I was trying to like advise him on the phone how to he was saying it's not working it's not working I was like trust me it works you're getting <laughs> something wrong and, it, and then eventually like he was I think about ready to give up and then he changed something and then he was like I just heard him shouting down the phone oh my god I've got to make that mean like and uh and then that was it. Yeah, that, that was the creation of the tool. Man, I, I honestly don't even know what it was like to hack back then, you know, because uh, it, imagine that you don't have Mimi Cats, you don't have Kerber Roasting, you don't have DC Sync, you don't, you don't even have access token theft. It's like, how do you even, how do you even progress? I mean, everything was about uh, server-side exploitation, I suppose, right? So like, that was the MS, well... 2007 was before MSO 8067 even, right? Yeah. Um, holy crap. Yeah, so the, yeah, it's just like, I mean, today, today's version of kind of like Windows, Windows uh, red teaming or Windows attacking, I guess, is all about the credential shuffle, which is how, like, I'm currently this user. I have the ability to compromise the identity of these other users. Which which user do I want to become? Because that user is going to have access to some resource that progresses me towards my goal. and before incognito like there basically wasn't the existence of the credential shell like all the things that i think of when i think of how do i switch identities as a as an attacker those things didn't exist and so that that seems to be uh not to like not to puff you up too much but that seems to be a, a bit of a revolution in how uh we we approached attacking windows windows endpoints or Windows domain. Yeah, I think it, it it did change a lot because it, it really exposed how common it was for privileged tokens to be like all over the place. Yeah. Um and even simple things like RDP sessions that people disconnected. And it, and, and to begin and part of what I found when I was writing Incognito was that at the time, I think they then later fixed this, but at the time, if you ever connected via RDP to a system, even if you fully logged out, it was not cleaned up in memory. And the technique I used to do it was to like brute force all possible handles, all possible processes. So they didn't uh, need to officially exist anymore. As long as it had never been closed, you still gotcha. got it. Yeah. So you would, so literally a, a server that's been up for a year, you know, someone RDP'd in once and logged out, the token's still there, domain admin. 
So there was like things like that that just, yeah, like it really increased the exposure dramatically and made it, it made you realize, Jesus, that you can compromise almost any system and you'll probably get somewhere. Um, yeah. So yeah. So that's probably one of those efficiency things. Like I know um, in my file system forensics kind of background, one of the things that they do in file systems is they don't actually delete files. They just mark the MFT record as being deleted. And so that file can exist for a while and then you could carve it or you can you could recover it in certain ways. But they they used to do the same thing probably with access tokens because nobody ever cared. Like it's not normal for somebody in their daily course of activity to come across access tokens. Somebody would have to be explicitly looking for them. And at the time nobody was nobody was doing that. And so uh yeah there there's uh an interesting that's that's an interesting point because the way that the way that I would do to like a git system attack for instance today is I would I would steal the token for win logon right which is uh win logon's running a system but it's running in the same logon session as as the account that you're operating as and then you can you can just uh open open the token for that process and then you could copy it and you could you could apply it to your thread but kind of what you were what you were doing is you were saying show me all the access tokens on the computer and then you would print the you would say what user is associated with this i i imagine and then you would say okay we'll choose which one you want and we'll, we'll give it to you which is a that's a that's a fun way to do it because then you just depending on the system you're on you could have just a panoply of of options yeah i mean so like probably 90 percent of the time opening the process tokens the primary tokens get you all the same thing but yeah sometimes okay. you'll find ones that haven't you know, were previously impersonated, weren't the primary token left over, that kind of thing. So yeah, it just depended on the system as to whether it got you more. But you know, it was like sometimes it would get you more, and sometimes that was the one you were looking for. So yeah, yeah, I just brute forced them all basically. That's awesome, Jared. You didn't have all those cool attacks back then, but there was also no credential card, no virtualized LSAS, no everything else that Device Guard wraps in there. <laughs> so I mean. When I uh, the reason I haven't discovered something as cool as my namesake here is because I have a lot more security features. Too. Oh, is that what it is? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the oh, reason man. I haven't released my groundbreaking discovery. <laughs> yeah, you know they say we stand on the shoulders of giants, and so uh, <laughs> you know you you also have a lot more people explaining to you how the computer works than uh, we that's did back, back then. So <laughs> cool. Well, uh, I don't know, Luke, if. Luke Jennings, if you had anything that you wanted to uh, hit on that maybe we haven't we haven't touched on, sure. I was thinking we didn't speak so much about persistence okay. on the SAS attacks framework. I could maybe talk, uh, talk briefly about that because I think that's a pretty interesting phase because <laughs> it's it's I, I wouldn't want to be an IR person having to do with persistence in this new SAS world. The more I've looked into it, okay, yeah, hit um, us with that. So I guess. If you want to persist your access on an individual SAS app, so say you've compromised a user account on a individual SAS app, there's normally a few common ways you can do it. Very basic techniques, um, not particularly stealthy, but like some things enable you to create an API key just as a normal user to access your own things. Uh, sometimes you can add secondary logins of some kind. I've been calling them ghost logins. So you can connect up a social account, like your Facebook account, Google, whatever, or a secondary email provides you a different account that you can log in with separate to their normal mechanism. Uh, other things are like links, like sharing links. Like on OneDrive or Google Drive, you can share a document or you can share a whole folder 
Lots of applications have those sorts of things. That's interesting because then you don't even need any account after that. If someone doesn't notice you've shared everything, you just maintain access that way. The basic things on their own, it doesn't sound like, it sounds a bit basic, but when you multiply that by 100 different applications, yeah. for example, and they're all different on every application, and you know it starts getting quite tricky. And, and here's where I'm going to say, I'm going to sort of describe a scenario and make you realize how much of a pain this is. Imagine a traditional endpoint compromise, yeah? Now, obviously, if someone gets all the way to domain admin and so forth and DC syncs and the rest of it, yes, IR is a huge activity. But if you've got a good security setup, you catch them early, they've compromised a couple of endpoints, <laughs> low-proof users, they haven't moved laterally, you contain those endpoints, you lock out the accounts, reset passwords and so forth, you wipe the endpoints, obviously you maybe image them to do forensics, then you build from a trusted store to get back to the users, get them going again. It still work, but it's tangible. When and and that is a sort of compromise situation you should expecting to be dealing with mm-hmm. from time to time, no matter how good your security is. Now let's think about the SaaS world. Say I compromise someone's core uh, core identity on like Azure or Okta or something like that. Um, so I've got access to their email and their core SSO through phishing or an endpoint compromise, whatever. I then use that to access every single other SaaS app they use. Let's say it's 100, they're a big SaaS user. Whether that's by doing SSO logins, so establishing SSO-like sessions on all of them, or resetting passwords via the email, whatever the case. I then got access to 100 platforms. Now think back to those three persistence mechanisms that I mentioned before, they're all really simple things. I do that on every single one of them, yeah? And then I get kicked out of the core SSO account, fine. <laughs> like that's just one normal user compromise situation. How does IR deal with that? Yeah, horrible. <laughs> so <laughs> that's I think one of the the phases that's really quite interesting in the in the SaaS world now. Oh man, and and on top of that, you could have one app that connects you to all the other apps anyway. Uh, yeah. such as such as the like if then this then that or any of those types of workflow apps. So. Oh man, yeah. I um, I don't, I don't. It's kind of sad because I don't even know what the heck we're supposed to do with this because I don't. I'm <laughs> relatively ignorant, but it's definitely something that uh, now I'm paying a lot more attention to, kind of how I'm logging into things, the amount of different things that I'm using, and um, it's something that I think from a detection perspective, there's this is the, one of the things that we always tell people when they join Specter Ops, for instance, a new a new employee is. Uh, you have the opportunity to kind of choose what you're going to specialize in. And a lot of times when you join Spectre Ops, you're kind of interested in AD attacks because that's kind of what we're what we're known for. Um, but trying to be the expert on AD attacks at Spectre Ops when you have like Andy Robbins or Will Schroeder or those types of people becomes relatively difficult, right? That there's uh, It's a high bar. Um, but if in general, in the industry, if you want to start looking into like uh, SaaS attacks and how you could start detecting them and things like that, I mean, you've you've already created a really nice platform for for thinking about these, and you've you've given people a starting point. But this is a place that is probably just ripe for for research, for investigation, for looking at how you could build detection strategies. It's a it's a really good place for somebody to start trying to make a name for themselves and also differentiate themselves um, and offer a differentiated service. Um, and so, I, I just encourage our listeners if you're looking for something to be to be interested in uh, this. 
the SaaS world, it seems like there's just there's so much there for somebody to really dig into. And uh, it, I expect that the guys that push security are going to be more than happy to kind of talk to you about about what they're working on and uh, integrate you into the threat matrix and and give you some some ideas. So that this is something that I, I really encourage our listeners to kind of dig into and, and start thinking about, even if it's just from the perspective of understanding what your exposure is as an organization. That's that's probably a big problem just to begin with. Definitely, yeah, it's it's one hundred percent right for lots of new research, and uh, you know, I think we're the very early parts of a new era in in cybersecurity. I think for this, really, it's probably uh, similar to the the very early days of when people started doing the first kind of limited limited endpoint compromises, and before things like Cobalt Strike existed, so there was yeah. big tooling. I think we're we're at that point right now, probably where things are about to rapidly change. I think. Awesome, cool. Uh, Luke Payne, you got anything you want to touch on before we wrap up? I don't. Just want to thank you for your time, Luke. Appreciate you. Uh, um, had to do a little reschedule. Jared, Jared got sick for the first episode, but yeah. uh, appreciate you sticking with us and uh, and giving us the time. Yeah. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again. And uh, definitely, definitely learn something. Even just preparing for this, I read some of your blog posts. Like like we said, we're gonna we're gonna link those in the show notes. And you you give some really great explanations. The videos that you made. Uh, to describe the attacks and demonstrate them, they're they're like three minutes long, and they do they do a really good job of walking through how you how these attacks can be combined. One of the things that kind of initially I thought was, yeah, there's these different attack techniques or these different techniques that attackers can use, um, but it seems like maybe you're going to use one one here or one there, but kind of showing how you can link these things together to create a kind of more robust attack was was really interesting and your blog posts do a great job at that. So we're going to share those out and hopefully people will start digging into this and um, take this a little bit more seriously because it's something that um, seems like a, seems like a problem that none of us are addressing at all. <laughs> cool. All right. And uh, go ahead, Luke. I was just say thank you very much. Absolutely. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, thanks everybody for listening and uh, we're, we're back. So hopefully uh, we will get on a more, uh, consistent recording schedule and we'll have some more guests and uh, we'll get DCP back, back up and running. So thanks everybody for your time and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Detection Challenging Paradigms. If you want to keep up with us, you can do so on Twitter at DCP the podcast or on our website, dcppodcast.com, where you'll find links to all previous episodes and their episode guides, as well as to our store where hundred percent of our proceeds benefit charity. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.